Hello and welcome to another week of our uh, sermon being recorded here and uploaded. For those of you who can't be with us uh, at home, I'm praying for you. I know that God's in control of your life and I pray that you're submitting to Him and trying to do what you feel is, is right in the Lord. And for those of you with health problems, you know, I'm, I'm praying for you too. And, and so I'm going to keep recording these weekly messages for you until uh, we have a little bit more of an all clear uh, for everyone to return. And, and I hope it helps. I hope it's beneficial. And and uh, just, just know that I love you and I'm praying for you. Uh, let's begin uh, this with a word of prayer. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I love you and I thank you for the opportunity to serve in whatever capacity I can be helpful to those who have no choice but to remain at home uh, throughout this pandemic. And I pray for their health. I pray for their safety, for those with compromised immune systems. I pray, Father, that your hand will be on their lives, that you'll guide them and keep them and protect them and return them safely to us. We look forward to reunion with all those whom we have lost over the years where there is no sickness and no sin, where there is peace with you and there's no fear anymore in heaven. Father, we pray that we can live fearless lives based on that pretext and not on any sort of sense of invulnerability here on the earth because we are vulnerable and you know we know that you've made us vulnerable and, and as the curse of sin, that vulnerability reminds us of a need for a Savior and salvation. So thank you, Father, for these things, even as we struggle with them, and, and help us to do right now as we uh, receive a message from your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to be uh, teaching from 1 Timothy chapter 3. For those of you uh, listening at home, this is the same message that will be received this week. Uh, on Sunday morning uh, in our church service. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, take it and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to read the first seven verses. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. So we begin, uh, I'll, I'll begin reading as you turn. This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil." Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So those are the qualifications for pastors. And last week we introduced this text as part of the Bible that tells us what the qualifications for a pastor are. These qualifications are important, pastors are important, and they should be qualified for the job that they're performing. Last week I think we observed primarily three things when we looked at this. Number one, this letter was written to pastors because pastors are supposed to do this evaluation, this ordination process uh, as we've uh, come to refer to it today. The qualifications for pastors are found in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and in Titus chapter 1. They're not found in the general epistles to the churches. They're found here in the letters to pastors because pastors are supposed to take up the responsibility for evaluating those who would be pastors as well. Second thing I think we observed last week in the main is that it's a good thing to want to be a pastor. Look at how Paul begins this chapter. 
He says, this is a faithful saying. This is a right saying. This is a saying that we should cling to, a saying that we should be faithful to. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he, does, he desires a good work. So this is a good thing to have desires, to be a pastor, to be a bishop, to be an elder, all, all the same thing. It's a good thing to have these desires. It's not a bad thing. No one should be discouraged from desiring to be a pastor. No one should be ridiculed or mocked for, for applying to be a pastor or, or trying to venture down that road, even if they end up being disqualified, even if they're not able to teach, or even if they have some disqualifying characteristic in their life. I mean, these are not things to be ashamed of when it comes to a desire to, to be a pastor. I mean, there may be shameful things, as there are for all of us. But there, there's nothing wrong or nothing, nothing sinister about the desire to be a pastor. We need to encourage that where God is leading a person uh, in that route in their life. And we need to do the work of evaluating them. Third thing I think we covered in the main last week, the qualifications given here are to be applied to the man as he is now, that is presently, and they are to be, they are to be applied, the qualifications are to be applied at the judgment of the other pastors. And we talked about this primarily two ways. There is no person who was blameless before they became a Christian. There is no person who doesn't have some sort of disqualifying characteristic in their life prior to salvation. The, 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 the pastor, the man who's applying to be a pastor, has to be evaluated in the present. Okay, and that's important to understand. And a lot of these are judgment calls. They require an evaluation. They're not lying in the sands where it's a simple black or white issue and it's easy to distinguish. These are things that the pastors who are evaluating them are going to have to work through and, 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 and analyze and look at in the life of the person who's coming forward for this position. Now, last week we covered the first two qualifications one that a man be blameless and two that he be the husband of one wife I'm certainly not eager to go there again I, once is enough for a long time so today we'll move on to the ones that are left on the list because there are 15 of these and we've only covered two so far so with 13 remaining uh, we're going to proceed at a brisk pace well as, as brisk as it gets for me anyway the third qualification found in verse 2 if you'll notice he must be temperate. The ESV translates this word as sober-minded, which is confusing because the New King James translates the next qualification as sober-minded, while the ESV translates the next qualification as self-controlled. That should tell you there's going to be some overlap in these qualifications. Honestly, the ESV is probably the better translation here because to be temperate is to be sober-minded. Uh, temperance, if you know anything about the English word, refers to an abstinence from alcohol, as does sober, an abstinence from alcohol. So here Paul isn't demanding total abstinence from alcohol, but he's requiring a mind that is always sober, a mind that is not compromised, a mind that is always clear. And that's what I think this is getting at, clear-mindedness. This is the ability to think clearly. When viewed through the lens of the current pandemic that we're in, a pastor must be able to clearly apply what he knows of God's Word in order to instruct God's people, because this is a difficult situation. We need pastors who are clear-minded. A pastor must have a clear mind in order to oversee the operation of the local church. There are lots of questions and lots of difficulties. It requires clear thinking. A panicked mind at a time like this would do no good. 
we need a clear mind. We don't need anyone jumping to conclusions or being ruled by their emotions. We need clear-mindedness. The church needs to be overseen by people who will think clearly, not as if they're in a fog or a haze or, or, or in, a, in a mass confusion. We may not always be able to see the way clearly ahead. A, a pastor is not required to predict the future. A pastor is not required to have a vision through the clouds of life. But even in the middle of foggy and difficult situations, we must have a reason. The pastor must have sound reason for doing what he does. Clear thinking must be behind it. In an interview with a pastoral candidate, one of the questions that must be answered in the process is this. Does this person who wants to be a pastor demonstrate that he thinks clearly? Or has he demonstrated impulsive, unreasoned, inexplicable behavior? Because if there's a pattern of that, then the person ought not to be a pastor. A person can be a genuine believer and a fine Christian and not be qualified for this role in the church because he has demonstrated that he is not clear-minded. It's no sin to struggle with, with foggy thinking and, and, and difficult reasoning in the midst of difficulty. Uh, it's no sin to simply not possess this characteristic in your life. But to be a pastor, clear-mindedness must be observed. Okay. Now, fourth thing, after temperate in the King James Version comes the word sober-minded, which, again, the ESV calls self-controlled, if you're trying to line these things up. Being sober-minded is essentially the same as being self-controlled, and it goes hand-in-hand -hand with what the New King James calls temperance. There is an overlap in qualifications. If being temperate means having clear thinking, then being sober-minded has to do with applying that clear thinking to a person's life by controlling one's impulses. In other words, this has to do with the discipline to apply the clear thinking to your life. A pastor should not be a person who is unable to bring his life under the discipline of what he has thought about and determined is right. Having thought clearly about something, a pastor must have the strength of character to apply that clear thinking to himself in a way that controls his approach to life. For instance, if a man has reasoned that credit card debt is a foolish way to go on vacation, then the man has to uh, come to a conclusion in his practical way of living that he's not going to go into massive credit card debt in order to achieve his impulses or desires. If he thinks something through clearly, then he should not be the kind of person who then disregards that sound thinking and just goes with what feels good in the moment. If a man has reason that it would be morally compromising to routinely and casually visit the local bar, then he has to have the self-control and the personal discipline not to go in that place. So the third and fourth qualifications, temperance and sober-mindedness, go together. Now, the fifth qualification is of good behavior, which the ESV calls respectable. And this has to do with the outward presentation of himself. Did you know that a pastor was to be concerned with his outward presentation? It's true. He is. You might take a look at me and say, it doesn't seem like you're overly concerned about your outward presentation, but I do. I do think about my outward presentation. Years ago, 
a young man uh, who's in our church called me out of the blue one day and he said, I'd like to get your opinion on something. And I said, okay, uh, what would you like my opinion on? And he said, I was thinking about getting a tattoo. And I wanted to know if that was okay. Now, I told him what I believe. I don't think the Bible prohibits anyone from getting a tattoo. But then I said, you should think carefully about getting one. Because if you ever felt the Lord calling you into ministry, there are places where a tattoo could be an obstacle for some people. Now, why would it be an obstacle? Because not everyone sees that as respectable or good behavior for their pastor to demonstrate. That's why, you know, I do things like cut my hair and shower and bathe, among other things. Although my, my hair takes care of itself more or less these days. I try to wear presentable clothes. I try to be polite and courteous. I hold doors open. I let others go first. I try to exhibit good behavior. There is, there is a fine line between trying to impress people with your outward appearance, which we shouldn't be aiming for, and on the other hand, trying to be respectable in one's outward behavior and presentation so that I don't become a general hindrance to the work that I'm trying to do. A pastor's outward presentation of himself, generally speaking, is not inconsequential. It does matter. It should be evaluated. The sixth qualification now, the sixth one, is that a pastor be hospitable. Now, the word hospitable has been wrongly understood, I think, to mean friendly. A pastor should be friendly. A pastor should be inviting. But that is not precisely what this word means. Think of the word hospital or hospice. Do those words conjure up the idea of friendliness? Or when you think of those words, do you associate those words with caring and providing for people? Similarly, the word hospitable doesn't necessarily mean that the pastor is always inviting his friends into his house and being friendly to everybody. Though everyone at our church is welcome at my house and you don't need an invitation, you can just come by. The word more precisely means someone who opens up their home and opens up their possessions to those who are in need in a caring way. The Good Samaritan was hospitable. The Pharisees and Sadducees, who often invited Jesus into their house because they wanted to develop some advantageous relationship or because they considered him a peer or a friend, were not hospitable. In fact, many of them are among the most inhospitable examples that we find in the New Testament. But the Good Samaritan who opens up his purse, his wallet, who shares his possessions and his, in care for someone in need, that's hospitality. We need more people who are truly hospitable, who are not just inviting to friends and family and people that they enjoy being around. We need hospitable people who open up their lives and their possessions and their homes as an offering to people in need. A pastor should be someone who opens his home to the person in need. A pastor should be the friend to someone who is lonely. A pastor should open his wallet to the person in need. A pastor should be the one who freely gives and cares for others. He should be hospitable. Now, that brings us to the seventh qualification of a pastor, and that he is able to teach. Now, here's what I have to say on this. Being able to teach means that God has gifted that person as a teacher so that he understands God's word, he can communicate God's word, which he understands, and he can apply 
God's Word to the lives of other people. I'll say that again. A pastor should be someone who understands God's Word, who can communicate an understanding, who can communicate an understanding of God's Word, and who can apply God's Word to the lives of the people whom he is teaching. That's my uh, test here. Now, my litmus test. A pastor doesn't need to be captivating or funny or fascinating. But here's the test. If a person is earnestly desiring to learn and hear from God, to learn and hear from God's Word, a pastor should be able and willing to stand and to open the Bible, to read from the Bible, to explain what it means, and give purpose and direction for its application. That's a pastor's role when it comes to teaching. If you come to our worship service, it is not my job to make sure you aren't bored. Matter of fact, my daughter Ashlyn over there is, is helping me. Uh, she's the only other person in the sanctuary. E even her, it's not my job as she sits here in the service, as she sits here as I present this message, to make sure that she's captivated and entertained. That's not my job. That's not a pastor's job. It's my job to teach what is true in such a way that if a person is here desiring to hear from God's Word, if the Spirit of God is ready to activate conviction and good thinking in that person's life, they're not going to be hindered by what I'm doing, but instead what I'm doing is going to open up God's Word for them in a way that they can learn and understand. Now, if I show up here to teach a text, and I don't know the text, that's a problem. I'm not able to teach that which I don't understand. Now, I can stutter and stammer, or I could tell stories and pretend that I know what I'm talking about until my time is up and everybody feels like they've had a good little talk. And I might be so good at that and so likable that I fool a whole bunch of people into thinking that they just listened to a sermon. But if I didn't actually teach God's Word, I failed in this qualification here. And if I show up here knowing what God's Word says, and I'm just no good at communicating it, at explaining it, I'm not able to teach it. That doesn't mean that I'm dumb. It doesn't mean that I'm a lesser man or a lesser Christian. I may understand it fine for myself. I may just not be able to communicate that which I understand. There's no fault in that. There's no inferiority in that. But a pastor has to be able to communicate that which he understands from God's Word. A pastor, seventh qualification, has to be able to teach. Eighth qualification. And I think the eighth qualification doesn't surprise us, but a pastor should not be given to wine. The ESV says, not a drunkard. Now, there's not a lot to say here except this. I believe this means that wine should not be a regular part of the pastor's consumption. Now, aside from that, I'm going to offer what I think is wisdom, and if I get in trouble here, then I get in trouble, and I'll, li I'll live with it, okay? Alcohol is dangerous, plain and simple. The Bible warns about alcohol over and over again. It's not a coincidence that this shows up here in the qualifications for being a pastor. There are lots of things that the Bible doesn't mention when it comes to qualifications for being a pastor. It's not a coincidence that it shows up here. Alcohol is dangerous. I don't think a pastor should drink, period. Frankly speaking, I don't see why any man or woman in our world today should drink. Because alcohol, as the Bible has said, is dangerous. And in our society, alcohol is unnecessary. We have clean water. We don't need fermented juice, okay? We have more variety of beverages in our day and age than at any other time in the history of the world. 
We don't need alcohol for anything that I can think of. The Bible says it's dangerous. The Bible warns us about it. So my own clear thinking has led me to a place where I can't recommend it to anyone. Even if you can handle a drink here or there just fine, there is no good reason I can think of to risk setting an example of drinking that might lead to someone else's downfall if they follow your pattern. I'm not saying that drinking alcohol is sinful. I have never said that. You'll never hear me say that. No one will ever be judged by me for drinking alcohol. I'm not going to, to, to accuse you of wrongdoing. I'm saying that I think it's foolish, and I'm on firm biblical ground saying that, and I try not to make a habit of endorsing foolishness. Certainly, eighth qualification, a pastor shouldn't be given to wine. Now, ninth qualification is that a pastor not be violent which you would think would be obvious, but frankly, sometimes it's not, and I've witnessed that. A pastor, in other words, should not be a bully. A pastor should never intimidate or resort to physical confrontation. I'll give you some examples. A pastor should not be someone who gets physical in an argument. Someone who gets up in somebody else's face in a confrontation. Someone who lifts his child up by the collar, you know, grabs him by the scruff of his neck, wrestles the child around when he's angry. A pastor shouldn't throw a punch. A pastor shouldn't push his neighbor or his enemy. Now, this is not speaking of self-controlled, clear-headed defense of the defenseless. This is not about defending our country or stepping up for someone who is in danger. This speaks towards an eagerness toward physical confrontation. There is nothing commendable about a violent man. Now, there's something honorable about a man who is willing to fight when he has to. But all men, all men should see violence as regrettable and as a tragic last resort even when it is necessary. Pastors should not be violent men. Tenth qualification is gentleness. And there isn't much to say about this except that it does not mean someone who is a coward. Sometimes people hear gentleness and they think, well, that means someone's got to be a coward. And that's not what it means. It means gentleness that comes from the Spirit of God. God is not a coward. His Spirit inside of us gives us gentleness, fruit of the Spirit from Galatians. God does not give us a spirit of cowardness, but a spirit of courage, and yet gentleness goes hand in hand with it. Gentleness is not the coward who is always running away in fear. Gentleness is the trait of a person who might possess the power to fight back or be destructive and chooses not to use it. If you read or if uh, you have watched the movies of, of Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's famous books uh, to children, Aslan in the story is the lion who certainly has the power to overwhelm and destroy his enemies, but instead lays down his own life for others. Now, the, the, the character that C.S. Lewis is trying to present in his children's stories depicted in the lion that is Aslan is the character of our Savior Jesus Christ. Gentleness is our Savior. Our Savior who could have called down legions of angels and instead while crucified asks that his enemies be forgiven because they don't understand the spiritual significance of what they're doing. Many, many times I can attest a pastor will find himself in a position to defend himself against 
rumors, slanders, gossip, second-guessing, personal attacks, and the like. Many times a pastor will find himself in those situations. And in nearly all of those occasions, it is right and best for the pastor simply to take the abuse and keep going. A pastor who cannot be bruised and wounded and carry on without retaliating, without attacking, without justifying and engaging his enemies at every turn, without seeking personal vindic vindication. A pastor who cannot be bruised and wounded will not be a pastor who is effective in gospel ministry. A pastor must be gentle. Which brings us to the 11th and corresponding qualification. A pastor can't be quarrelsome. A pastor can't be someone who argues and debates all the time. People are going to confront pastors and people are going to disagree with them. People are going to talk about them behind their backs and undermine what they say and do. All leaders experience that. It is no different in the church. In fact, it is often intensified in the church because what people believe about the Lord and what people believe about the Bible and what people believe about a community of believers is very personal and people are very passionate about it. So pastors and their decisions and their leadership will always experience attacks and disagreement and undermining. A pastor is not to be the kind of person engaging in arguments and debates all the time. Now I have a very simple job. I study God's Word so I know the truth. I try to apply the truth in the form of teaching what I'm doing now. I try to apply the truth of God's Word in the decision-making of pastoral oversight. I'm not infallible. I do the best I can. I do this prayerfully and in communication with other pastors who are cooperatively trying to apply the same truth to the same decisions. We do the best we can. I'm not going to argue and debate every decision and situation. Disagreement is not sin. Quarreling isn't good. A pastor shouldn't have a character of arguing and debating all of those who disagree with him. Okay, Twelfth qualification. We're making progress here. A pastor should not be covetous. Now, the ESV actually better translates this particular phrase. It literally says, not money-loving. So this is not simply covetous in the sense of desiring things that other people have. It's not what we would call envy. This is loving money. Now, to hear some preachers talk, uh, it's obvious that they love money. I, I, they talk about money all the time. It's what They can't get away from money. They, they love money. Uh, I did a series of videos with Pastor Steve on one of Joel Olstein's sermon, his record-breaking sermon. You know Joel Olstein broke an entertainment record by live-streaming a sermon to millions of people. So we, we thought we would listen to that sermon and make some comments of our own. In the sermon we listened to, he used the name of Jesus one time at the very end. He used the word sin zero times. He used the words prosper and promotion in the context of promotions at work more than ten times. It was pretty plain to see what he loves and where his passion was because it wasn't like he was even teaching on money. He was teaching on something else and that's just where he kept going over and over and over again. You can prosper and you can have promotion. It's not hard to see what his focus is. But other pastors love money more quietly than that. 
Many of them have huge flourishing ministries in terms of money, and some of them just have small local ministries, but they can love money all the same. And if the people around them evaluate it, it's not a hard thing to see. Some pastors, men like James McDonald, and I'm not afraid to say his name, have good sounding theology and conservative Bible doctrine, but they have proven themselves to be bullies and money lovers from a distance, from far away, from people who can't evaluate them in the middle of their ministry locally where they live. They amass large followings because of how well they teach, but up close and personal they are destroying lives and dominating people who should have the guts to continually call them out for what they are, disqualified, no matter how good they are at attracting audiences. Guys like McDonald and Mark Driscoll, lots of other bullies and money lovers, they never spend much time out of a job even when they get fired and lose the jobs that they have. They issue their vague apologies and then they go right back into ministry as soon as they can get away with it because ministry is their vocation. It's their career. It shouldn't be. It should be a high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ to men who are qualified. But, hey, everybody's got to eat in their books, so they go right back to what they uh, know to do for a living. And you know what? Too many churches are eager to embrace guys like that because they have this talent of attracting people. But none of the qualifications in here point to an ability to attract people. So let's just get that out in the open while we deal with this. One of the qualifications for being a pastor is not the ability to amass large crowds. This is not, you know, circus tent, uh, you know, a uh, 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 crowd barking. This, that's not what this is. This is not about grabbing large numbers of people and attracting huge crowds. That is not a qualification for being a pastor. Pastors should not be lovers of money, which is often the instigus behind the, the, the sentiment behind attracting large crowds. They shouldn't be in the ministry to get money, and they shouldn't be bullies about it. Now, the 13th qualification. This is a qualification of a pastor that he rules his house well. Part of that being the behavior of his children. His children should be submissive and reverent and respectful. Now, this doesn't mean that his kids grow up to be great adults. It means that while they are in his house and under his authority, he should see to it that while they are in his house, they are submissive and respectful. If the child reaches adulthood, goes out from his father's house, and chooses to walk away from his father's God and live a wicked and rebellious life, this verse does not disqualify the pastor. The pastor is not an authority over that child anymore. This is not a litmus test for being able to save your children. No Christian can save their children. The Spirit of God alone does that. There are lots of, of, of parents here, I think, who assemble with us in this congregation who need that reiterated. You need to pray for your children because even if you do the best job you can raising them, you cannot save your children. You can teach them, you can guide them, you can plead for them, you can instruct them, you can work with them, and you can do a good job of all those things. But the Spirit of God alone saves men and women. But a Christian man is responsible to be the father that God has called him to be and to demonstrate good leadership in the home by raising children who are submissive to his authority and respectful. Even unbelieving pagan people know how to do that. Okay, this is not a particularly Holy Spirit uh, 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 needed qualification here that you can rule your house with submissive children who are respectful. This is not impossible. Good parenting should see to it. And verse 5, 
makes it clear that this man's ability to demonstrate leadership in his home is up for evaluation when he presumes to apply for leadership in the church. Verse 5 says, If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So if my wife suddenly stops coming to church or begins to disregard any kind of authority or leadership that I have in my home, pastors and people in the church are right to be alarmed and to question that. If my children are rebellious, disobedient kids, it's right for my leadership ability to be questioned. There's nothing particularly wrong about uh, stating the obvious or expressing concerns there. A qualified pastor should be able to demonstrate right leadership in his home first. And by the way, if the only way that he can lead his household, if the only way that he can keep his children in submission is by turning into some yelling, physical confrontation, tyrant, brute at home, then he's got no business leading the church, even if everybody is in submission because they're scared to death of the guy. He's not allowed by the scriptures to behave that way at home, frankly. No man is. He certainly mustn't be allowed to lead the church that way. And I should add one more thing. To my thinking... This is where the issue of divorce is most disqualifying for a pastor. A pastor whose wife divorces him while in his ministry is going to have a nearly impossible time convincing me that he has managed his household well. That's not to say that divorce is, is, is his fault, but at some point, leaders take responsibility for the outcome of the venture of the group that they are leading. If Allison and I were to get a divorce, and no one would be more shocked at that outcome than Allison and I, frankly, but if we were to divorce, I would immediately resign. I would not seek to reestablish myself into any kind of pastoral role in this church or in any other church. I just wouldn't do it. Now, I might at some point, if, if the opportunity presented itself, start teaching again in some capacity, because teaching is a spiritual gift, and I would want to serve God as much as I was allowed in a local church under the authority of pastors in a God-honoring way. I might write. I might counsel. I might do all sorts of other good, godly, edifying, and rewarding, even eternally rewarding, spiritual work. But I would not be comfortable lowering the standard of leadership in the church to include a man who during his ministry wasn't able to manage his own household without collapse. I just wouldn't. Now, I don't know how many people I've irritated by saying that, but, but that's what you get when you get teaching and application. Uh, you get the teaching and application of the pastor. Fourteenth qualification is simple and obvious. A pastor shouldn't be a new Christian. The danger being that he might get so full of himself and fall into the same kind of trap that Satan fell into. The Bible tells us that Satan, as an angel of God, was not content to be an angel, which is a ridiculous thought, but instead wanted to ascend to the position of God himself. I will ascend to the, to the, uh, to the Most High. So a young Christian should not be given the position of a pastor, lest he fall into the trap of self-important, prideful thinking and ruin himself. I think no one has any business being a pastor until they've spent years as a Christian demonstrating the qualifications required in this letter. Now, finally, we come to the 15th qualification of a pastor. And this is very general, but it says in verse 7, He must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, what does this mean? It means this. Among outsiders who are not openly antagonistic to him, 
you know, among fair-minded people in the community. The reputation of the pastor should not be generally bad. I have enemies who don't like what I'm doing. If you don't know who they are, then I'm glad, but they're out there. Those people are not going to think very highly of me, period. But among the people who know me from my time, like in the school, for instance, or among people who know me out in the community and the world, among my neighbors, people should not hear my name and say, man, that guy is a cheat, or that guy is a fraud, that guy is a liar, that guy is a bully. A pastor, for instance, should keep his word in business arrangements. A pastor should pay his debts. A pastor should be kind and gentle. A pastor should not be in arguments and debates all over the place and all kinds of feuds in the public. He should have a good testimony among those who are outside because if he doesn't, and this is what the verse means, Satan will use his bad testimony as a trap to bring the whole church under reproach and criticism in the community, and that's, that's not a good basis to start a gospel witness program. Hi, I'm so-and-so from that church. You mean that church where that, 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 that lunatic, of a, uh, that, that scoundrel, that guy who didn't pay his debts as the pastor? Yeah, that's the church I'm from. That's not a great way to start a gospel presentation. Satan would like to tarnish the reputation of the church. By doing that, a pastor needs to have a decent enough opinion out in the community. Now, these are the qualifications we have for a pastor. I want to close with a few quick comments. Number one, I don't know of any other role in human life that the Bible applies 15 qualifications to. Uh, if you're a Christian, you can take a big sigh of relief at that because you don't have to pass 15 different qualifications to serve in ministry. You don't have to pass 15 qualifications to do great and mighty things for the Lord. Okay, uh, This role then is important and, and the importance of it is illustrated in the, in the, the detail and, and frankly the scope of all these qualifications that are given. And it shows the kind of respect and honor that men who are held to this standard really deserve. If, if you have pastors, wherever you are listening to this, if you have pastors who meet these qualifications and are, are continually trying to hold themselves to these standards, you, you should know that those are, those are men who are deserving of honor and respect. Those are not men who are, who are deserving of constant judgment and criticism and, and undermining. I mean, this is a tough thing. It's not for everybody. Second thing I'll observe here is my dad used to say to me when I was a kid growing up in a pastor's home, he used to say, son, your decisions could ruin my ministry. And I think a lot of people would have heard that and been like, oh my gosh, that's a terrible amount of pressure to put on, on your son. But you know what? It was pressure, but it wasn't a bad thing for him to say because it was true. If I had gone out on some rebellious tangent and, and, and done a bunch of wickedness and rebellion against my father, uh, you know, I, my dad would have been disqualified. And the point I'm trying to make here is, the second observation I'm trying to make is, this is an ongoing evaluation process. The church has to balance the graciousness of forgiving sin and embracing a man who is a sinner and yet holding himself to these qualifications while at the same time taking these qualifications seriously. You know, th this requires ongoing evaluation. My father wasn't wrong. A, pa a man can be disqualified. It's not like you pass these qualifications once and you're good for life. You never have to be evaluated again. You know, everything is good forever. That's not what this is about. This is an ongoing thing. And you know, someone who steps down from the ministry after doing the very best they can 
and then they humbly acknowledge that they're disqualified. If they accept that and serve God from the position that they're in, you know, that person deserves forgiveness and they deserve embracing in the body of Christ and they deserve you know, an opportunity to still do good things for God's kingdom, albeit not in a role which they're not qualified to fulfill. So uh, the second thing I want to emphasize here is the ongoing nature of these qualifications. And the third and final thing I'll say before I wrap this up, pastors should be held to high standards. This is a good thing. This is a right thing. They are under shepherds of the great shepherd. The great shepherd is Jesus. If we are going to do the work of Jesus Christ among the people of Jesus Christ, then we are going to have to model Jesus Christ in the way that we do it. And Jesus Christ sacrificed a lot even before he died on the cross. He didn't marry. He didn't have a wife and children and a home and so many domestic satisfactions that many pastors are able to have. He was not wealthy. He did not have a great home. And he pointed that out. You know, foxes have dens, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't build a great earthly kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't violently confront his opponents. He turned the other cheek. He walked away. He told his disciples to turn the other cheek and walk away. Even when he drove the people out of the temple with a cord of whips, he was driving the animals violently. He was flipping over tables because of the evil of what it was to make the house of God into a trading market. But he wasn't being violent with human beings. There's no account of that. Jesus didn't argue and debate every Pharisee's criticism. It was often in the middle of one of their attempts to get him into an argument when he would have the clear-headedness to say profoundly true things and engage all the people spiritually in a way that mattered instead of entering into a fruitless debate. Jesus was not given to much wine. You know, the, all of these characteristics are represented in the Lord in the way that He lived a disciplined life of service to our Heavenly Father. Philippians tells us that being found in the form of a man, which that, there's a part of that phrase that will always take my breath away. It, it gives the, the connotation that Jesus, being born of a virgin, coming to an age of understanding, discovered, found himself in the form of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. But you know, that's how much Jesus loves us. That's how much he loves me. That the, the Son of God, Almighty God, would become a man. And being, being a man, he wouldn't transform himself into this superhero like are depicted in the comic books and the movies some supernatural being that uses his supernatural ability to elevate himself above everybody else. He didn't put on a big cape and, and fly around in the sky. Being found in the form of a man, he became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. And it's that kind of gentle Savior that Jesus was, that Jesus is. And pastors are called to this kind of obedient loving, sacrificial service. It's the beauty of the gospel that compels a pastor to model his life according to these qualifications, that the Son of God would die on the cross to save us, that the Son of God would lay aside all of his power and all of his comfort and take the form of a man to save us, that the Son of God would humble himself 
that he would resist the urge to do the most natural thing in defending himself. You know, Jesus is our example here. If Jesus could become obedient even to the point of death, it is not too much to ask that a pastor be obedient to God in these qualifications. Now let's close now with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for the call in my life. I pray, Father, that I'll always be able to live up to this call when it comes to the qualifications. But even if I don't live up to this call, and even if I find myself disqualified, I pray, Father, that it won't be to the embarrassment of the church, that the church will, will not be harmed by any, any false step or any, any disqualifying action of me or those whom I love. I pray, Father, that you will continue your church with good godly leadership and that you'll continue to allow me to serve in it no matter what capacity you call me to. It is a privilege just to be a part of the body of Christ. Father, I pray that all pastors everywhere will take the message and the passage like this to heart, that they'll think and they'll guard themselves against wrong temptations, that you'll give them clear thinking to live self-controlled lives. I pray for churches, that they'll have the courage to confront sin, that they'll have the strength to resist disagreements and arguments and bitterness, that they'll be submissive to good leaders, that they'll honor them and that they'll hold them up as good examples for their children instead of gossiping about them and ruining their reputations behind their backs. Help the body of Christ to function as you've called it to function and bring us all back together again. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.